0: Welcome to a new episode of the Bighorn Podcast. This is Marty Lockman, and as we enter into 2022, we continue to present interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We will talk to people inside of our Bighorn community and people who have touched our world in a way that have impacted our lives in a personal way. As we have talked before, we strive to make an emotional connection with their lives, with all the twists and turns that have brought them to this part in their journey. We have shown that their lives teach us life lessons and various factors that have contributed to their success, but also tell stories that show humor, emotion in their personal and private lives. Today's show is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son, Fine Jewelers, who have been a part of our community for over 75 years, and Back Nine Greens, who provide a great product that is a work of art, along with great service and individual attention. Today's podcast will show once again a great success story that through various twists and turns will entertain and inform you. Robert Castle, with his wife Maureen, have been part of our community since 2012. And Bob's story will surprise you in many ways. So listen now for a story that starts in Brooklyn, New York. Bob, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Marty, for having me here. Brooklyn is right. I was born in Brooklyn at Kings County Hospital in 1940. Family was middle-class family. Father was in the garment business. Two sisters, eventually. Life was pretty normal. Wasn't anything special or any cataclysmic events or anything that would have traumatized me. Other than being left alone a lot (laughs) as a middle child in Brooklyn, you went out in the streets and played, and uh, pretty much that's what you did all the time. But it was a good upbringing. It was easy. And at about the age of 10 or 11, we took the path of a lot of Brooklynites, found our way to Long Island, in my case, West Hempstead. I'm sure that you can still hear in my voice the remnants of the Brooklyn accent that never seems to go away, even though I've been in California for almost 30 years. It just gets stuck there and won't get away. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but... Most people immediately respond by telling me, oh, it sounds like you come from Brooklyn. Well, nothing wrong with that, but they're right. From Brooklyn and we went to Long Island, I I went to uh, middle school and high school on Long Island and primarily was involved in sports, wasn't much of a student. Was able to get by because I had some, I was able to get by pretty well with sports and Football, basketball, and baseball, which were the three biggies back in those days. Whenever I had an incident that would cause some concern at school, the coaches in those days would go to the administration and say, leave him alone, I need him because he's uh, the catcher on the baseball team or he's my uh, halfback on the football team. Administration was really not what it is today, not the kind of attention that there is today, but I was very lucky. Uh, worked my way through high school, which uh, sort of brought out an aggressiveness in me, which uh, didn't know existed until I got into high school, but I was always getting involved in altercations and was always getting me sort of in, in some sort of trouble, but got through. When I finished high school, sort of on the lower end of the high school class, I wound up going into or getting into a uh, junior college, which I think still exists today and probably is uh, a reservoir for reprobates that can't get in anywhere else. But I was lucky. I got transferred from that school, which was allegedly because there was some talk about me getting a scholarship, a football scholarship, to the University of Georgia. That quickly disappeared when I showed up and saw that all the guys coming back from, I think it was Korea and the veterans program were 230 pounds and big grown men who were 26 and 27 years old, uh, just literally would turn me into mincemeat. had nowhere to go. My mother said, listen, there's a school in Atlanta, University of Georgia's in Athens, Georgia. I said, what school? She said, Emory University. So she said, why don't you go over there and talk to the administration and see maybe you can get in, despite all the problems you had in school, and, and you know, maybe you can figure out how to convince them to let you try. So I went over there, and there was a very uh, understanding, and very nice head of admissions who said, listen, Emory University uh, does not have good geographic distribution. We're looking for students from the north, northeast. And I'll tell you what, we'll accept you on probation so that if you come here and you make at least a B average, you can stay. If not, you're out. Uh, That was daunting to me because I didn't know what a B looked like when I was in high school. But in any event, I, I went. Somehow, which I certainly can't explain in this podcast what to myself ever, I wound up getting a B average and was able to stay there. And they didn't have any major athletics, which turned out to be a good thing because I then focused on girls, uh, you know, and school. Uh, It was a wonderful university. And I think today has been elevated to really being considered one of the finer universities in the United States. It's uh, got the advantage of being subsidized by the Coca-Cola family, the Woodruff family, all pink marble buildings that come from their own quarry, a wonderful place to be able to go to school and take advantage of the opportunities that they offered. I uh, was not real good at taking those opportunities. I was uh, didn't pay attention as I should have paid attention, but managed my way through. Uh, when I got into my... Uh, Junior year, I was uh, a little bit worried and troubled because I didn't have all of the prerequisite courses for graduation. But Emory had a kind of a very strange program which allowed you into law school after three years of college. And when you finished your first year of law school, you got a Bachelor of Arts in law. I don't know of any other university that does that, but they did. I went over to the law school and uh, spoke to the Dean of Admissions and somehow used powers of persuasion, which uh, were one of the gifts that I was given, few gifts that I was given, and persuaded the Dean of Admissions to once again allow me in on probation. Well, I got there and I made whatever grade was required of me to remain and I remained at Emory Law School until graduation and got married in my first year of law school to a young lady from Atlanta. I then graduated, came up to New York, and took the bar exam. Initially, I thought I failed because I wasn't on... The way you found out in those days was you read the newspaper, and they printed all of the people who had passed. I wasn't on that list. But I didn't look further, and further down the list was those who have passed but not yet qualified. And I hadn't qualified because I hadn't been a New York resident long enough. So after I had stayed in New York long enough, my bar exam was uh, certified, and I went to work in New York City. My first job during that waiting period was working for a law firm. I didn't care for $85 a week, but as soon as I found out, I passed the bar exam. I went to work for a sole practitioner who paid me $125 a week. The deal was that uh, I could keep 50% of the business that I brought in. Well, within six months, I brought in enough business where it was costing me money to work for him. So I left and set up a practice on my own. My young wife was working as a secretary uh, for fabric firm. Between the two of us, we we struggled. We moved to Queens, New York, where we had a small apartment. I started there. I was lucky. I was very, very aggressive. And didn't matter who you were or who I met, I would ask, do you need a house closing? Do you need a will? Do you need an assignment for the benefit of creditors? It didn't matter. And if they asked me if I was an expert, did I know what I was doing? I said, absolutely. And then after they left, I would go in the bathroom and throw up because I didn't know anything about the particular subject matter that they were asking me to to handle. But in any event, I worked my way through and I watched uh, the law profession and didn't care for it very much. I watched what went on. But the big money was happening in corporate law in those days, at least. And the kind of money the attorneys were making, it was where really... You had the opportunity to make some, some good money as opposed to doing trial work, uh, which I was no good at. I was much too aggressive and much too accusatory and, you know, not, not an easy kind of trial lawyer. So I, I, I didn't do well in that area. But I had a brother-in-law who was a member of a big law firm. I wound up someone asking me to handle some corporate case and uh, told him I was an expert. And after he left, went to my brother-in-law and said, would you guys handle this and let me learn? And he did, and I became a securities lawyer with IPOs and mergers and acquisitions by myself. And then within a period of a year or so, of a year and a half, I was busy enough to bring on another attorney to work for me, and I continued to grow. And eventually... uh, As it grew and I got more and more business, I wound up with 13 lawyers and a law firm called Castle, Burgoyne, Michaels and Rose, and we were on Park Avenue, trying to remember the address, uh, but it was uh, Park Avenue in, in those days, Fisher Building. The strange thing about all of this lawyering was I didn't like any of it. I never liked it. It was always dealing with other people's problems. And I had enough of my my own problems. I didn't want to constantly, every day, be addressing other people's problems and issues and being responsible for people's deals getting done or not getting done. And at the end, getting a decent fee, but watching my client or the clients on the other side of the table walk away with millions of dollars. So after 15 years, 14 or 15 years of doing that, and successfully, I was, uh, had no complaints about the financial side of it, but I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, and I would go to the other side of the table and become an investment banker. I didn't have any connections or mentors or anybody I knew, so I went out as a little boutique firm on my own and found some small deals in the beginning. was very happy doing that. Uh, at some point along the way, I was intrigued with the idea of running one of these companies, and so I started a company called Tennis Unlimited, and it was what the name sounded. It focused on tennis and other sports activities. It was a, a multifaceted sports conglomerate, and I hired a whole bunch of tennis professionals in those days like Billy Talbert and Tony Trabert and Chuck McKinley and Gussie Moran and also some football players from New York Giants, Tucker Fredrickson, and in those days the head of the uh, NBA commissioner, Bill Kennedy, uh, all came to work on my board, and we started out uh, working on different sports. Uh, program, started a clothing company, uh, for tennis clothes. I started a, a camp in Meirnhof, Austria. Uh, I don't remember exactly how that happened, but I got the Kennedy kids to go and that brought a lot of other kids to that camp. And that was pretty successful. And after, uh, About three years, I had become very friendly with a fellow by the name of Bob Arum. Many of you may have heard of Bob Arum, who is the czar of the boxing world and has been for many, many years. Bob and I were friends when he first left the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and went to work for a famous firm called Phillips, Neiser, Benjamin Crimin Bell. And that was Louis Neiser's firm. Many of the older folks listening... Uh, we'll remember Louis Nizer as a very famous uh, lawyer, uh, notable in the legal profession. In any event, Bob became friendly and was asked to investigate the situation with Muhammad Ali and his uh, promoters. Uh, there have been a lot of books and films made about Muhammad Ali, uh, most of which... Uh, Unfortunately, are not very accurate with the way Muhammad Ali progressed through his career. No need because he became an icon, a real promoter, and, and for racial equality, which was not what he started out doing. That's not what he, he was strictly a fighter. In any event, through a number of different strange events, I took over a company that Bob Arum had started with. Jim Brown, the football player, Freddie Hoffines, the son of Roy Hoffines, who built the Astrodome in Houston, and a fellow by the name of Michael Mallets, who was the guy who promoted boxing matches in movie theaters in those days. That's how you went to see big fights, You went to a movie theater where it was televised to an ATD, AT&T connection. So I wound up acquiring that company because Muhammad Ali couldn't fight anymore. He wouldn't step forward for the draft. Nobody, during a pendency of whether he would be indicted or not, would allow him to fight. Uh, he tried in 40 or 50 states, and each time that there was any chance, the federal government stepped in and stopped it. I became embarrassed because Bob Arum marched me out a few times when I was the head of the company. And said, I think I have the fight done in Detroit, because there was a fighter there who ran the commission called Chuck Davies, who was a fighter. He said, I got it done. And you have to put up a six hundred thousand dollar letter of credit and we can get it done. I said, Let me think about it. After a couple of days I said, Okay, well put up the letter of credit. Uh, that fell through because the government called, and the same thing happened in Florida, and the same thing happened in a couple of other states, and it became embarrassing because the press would always report that, oh, looks like a fight's going to happen. Bob Castle has agreed to put up the letter of credit again. looks like it's going forward. And it would just get killed by the federal government. Uh, I got frustrated and uh, decided one morning to come into the office and call my father-in-law, who lived in Atlanta. He was really a very small business, uh, a spice merchant, and said to him, do you know anybody in Atlanta, that has connections that could get Ali a license in Atlanta, which was a strange place to pursue a license down south where he wasn't very popular. But he said, Yeah, I think I do. I know a black senator by the name of Leroy Johnson that might be able to help. Let me put you in touch. And within a day, I got a call from Leroy Johnson who said, Do you actually really have? Muhammad Ali, ready to fight if I can get him a license. I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, let me call you back. As it turned out, the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia had no boxing commission. And so it was strictly up to the local city officials as to whether you could bring uh, an event into the city of Atlanta, boxing or otherwise, And the uh, senator was very friendly with the fellow who ran uh, the event commission. And they actually issued a license for Muhammad Ali to fight Joe Frazier. So we called the press. Uh, Now, mind you, I wasn't doing this at that time, having anything to do with racial issues. This was strictly, uh, I thought, a great way to make a ton of money. It sounded great. Ali coming back after three years was... Wow, what an opportunity. I was 30 years old at the time and didn't know anything about the boxing business. had one fellow working for me who was very, very familiar with all the different aspects of the boxing business and its promotion, and we held a press conference. And at the press conference, Ali said he would come down from his hotel room at the Marriott at the time once he heard that there was an actual license being presented to the press corps. There must have been a hundred different press people in the ballroom listening to the uh, conference. Uh, when I announced I had it, Ali came downstairs, and I uh, put a call from the dais in the front of the room to uh, Joe Frazier's camp and spoke to his uh, manager, by a fellow by the name of Yank Durham, who managed Joe Frazier. And I said, uh, Yank, I have a license, Ali, to fight Joe. He said, that's not possible. I don't believe it. I've heard it a thousand times. I'm saying, no, I'm I'm holding the license. I'm here with Senator Leroy Johnson and Lieutenant Governor Les...
0: Maddox, uh, uh, Lester Maddox?
1: No, Lester he? Maddox was governor. He was a problem. But I can't remember... Uh, Right now, the lieutenant governor's name. But in any event, uh, he said, we won't do it. So that turned out to be a bit of disappointment. Wasn't sure what to do. And uh, we said, but the fight will happen on a certain date, and we will have a great opponent. Uh, When we finished the uh, conference and I exhibited the contract and the license, all of those things that were necessary to... uh, or confirm to the press that it would really happen, Uh, we all went back, the principals, to a conference room and said, what do we do? One of them said, the best thing to do is find the great white hope because there isn't a person or a white person in the United States does not want to see Muhammad Ali get his ass kicked with his big mouth all the time from all his previous fights with his poems and his this and that. Interestingly enough, I had already spent a good bit of time with Muhammad Ali, and oddly enough, this was the most mild-mannered, kind, polite young man you'd ever want to meet in your life, 180 degrees away from what you saw in the press or on television. He was just a terrific young man. And uh, thanked me, said, I don't know who you're going to get, So after talking to a whole bunch of folks, we decided that the great white hope would be Jerry Quarry. Now, we didn't know where to find Jerry. We found his father, who was his manager, and Jerry was up in the northeast cutting trees down in a forest. I guess that was his training regimen. We got hold of him, and initially, Jerry said no. And his wife, I think, convinced him. Uh, that everybody else got a second chance. Why don't you give him a second chance? And Quarry called back and said, "Okay," And the fight was on. But there were a lot of disbelievers. I was a first-time fighting promoter, really didn't know what to do, and needed proof that the fight could happen. So Bob Arum, in selling me his fight company, said, I'll tell you what, there's going to be a fight between Joe Frazier and Jimmy Ellis at Madison Square Garden that I control. And if that fight happens, you take the company over. So I agreed I would do that. They held the fight in Madison Square Garden. Joe Frazier won. When the bell rang for round one, that was the term of the contract that said I would acquire the company, which I did. And then Sports Action, which was the name of the company, became part of my Tennis Unlimited multifaceted sports company we started promoting the fight. And it was rather an unusual road for me because at that point, Ali had become a black Muslim. A black Muslim's control to him. The great Elijah Muhammad, who headed up the black Muslims, had delegated management of Muhammad Ali to his son, Herbert Muhammad, who was always in hiding because he was a draft dodger. So it was hard to find him. So anytime I needed to find somebody like Herbert, to discuss the fight, I would have to try to find him at the Shabazz Bakery or the Shabazz Laundry or the Shabazz Cleaner. Uh, He was always at one of their businesses. And ultimately, we got our conversation going and got everything all set up. And they wanted to uh, have a bodyguard stay with me because they were afraid that uh, the threats that I was getting, I was getting lots of threats from people down south, how could you allow this to happen down here? This is uh, allowing the, you know, the N-word uh, to be used. Uh, this is disgusting down south. Uh, so I got lots of threats against myself and my family, and I stashed my family somewhere in, in those days in Buckhead, outside of Atlanta, which is now, I think, a major community, and uh, didn't really pay much attention to it. But I begged them not to give me a bodyguard. I was more frightened that that would cause problems than me being by myself. But in any event, there were lots of different funny things that happened. I had people come up to me and say, Muhammad has sent me for a $50,000 check, uh, which he needs for the training camp. And I would say, I don't know anything about that. And I would call Ali's camp. And Ali would say, give him the money. And so, you know, I was sort of trapped and gave him the money. We went along, and a lot of people didn't believe that the fight would happen. So uh, they held an exhibition at Howard University where they felt protected because it was a black university and uh, were pretty protected against any incursions or threats from white folks who said, you know, we'll stop it. And he held a three-round three-person, three-people fighter uh, exhibition and did very well. Uh, He was in good shape. And then everybody were convinced that, okay, the fight will happen. And uh, that turned out to be a three-ring circus. We held the fight in the municipal auditorium. Uh, It was uh, packed. But every big-time black... Uh, notable, including every pimp from Chicago (laughs) and big sportscasters, everybody uh, showed up at this fight uh, in their fur coats and had their cars shipped down. It was unbelievable. And I called Howard Cosell and said, Howard, would you moderate the fight? He said, sure. I want $250,000. I said, you're out of your mind. I'm, I'm not... I'm not doing that. He said, yes, you will. If you want me, and you have to have me because I'm his buddy. I said, well, I don't care if you're his buddy. or said, I'm not doing that. So I had to go and find somebody to replace him. So I went and got Tom Harmon, who was a pretty famous football player and moderator in those days for football. And then for the color on the commentation, which you usually have as a sidekick to the commentator to to. to to give color to the fight, I hired Bill Cosby, who in those days was one of the stars of I Spy, and he was the guy that did the color. Um, The fight took place, and in the third round, uh, Ali opened up a gash over Quarry's eye, and the doctor called the fight. I was panicked because... In the movie locations, people paid that much money to see the fight, and all they saw were three rounds. They were showing uh, chairs at the screens and bottles and everything else that they were being gypped because it was only three rounds. But for me, uh, in those days, we did $2.6 million. I took in $2.6 million, which was huge. Uh, and then the uh, black Muslims came to me and said, for what you've done, we're willing to sign our next three, four, five fights for you as our exclusive agent for what you've done. I said, for what I've been through, and uh, I don't want to be in the boxing business anymore. I'll pass up the money, and you guys can go back to Bob Arum and do whatever you did there. But I'm not going through this again. It was really uh, very, very frightening Uh, very stressful. I didn't have the experience, and somewhere along the line, I was going to get nailed one way or another, so I just bowed out. Not the smartest thing to do, money-wise, but life-wise, it seemed like the right thing to do, and so I then uh, got out of the fight business. That was my fight episode. My law firm was growing. Much as it was growing, that's as much as I was disliking doing it. And so I came in on a Thursday sometime about six months after the fight, told my partners, I'm resigning. I'm turning the firm over to you. You can have all the accounts. You can have the bank account, the clients, everything, the offices, the lease, it's all yours. And I left on that Thursday. Had not told my wife, uh, which was my second wife. Didn't mention that, yeah. Got married for the second time. Told her I had resigned. She thought I was crazy. I never went back. I don't know how long. I think the law firm lasted maybe another two years, at which point they never could bring in enough business, and it just failed. But I started getting involved in investment banking, doing small deals, mergers, acquisitions, IPOs. And I was able to do that because during my tenure as a securities lawyer, I had met all of these different underwriters and different fellows who did mergers and acquisitions and had represented my clients with them and knew them very well, called them up and said, would you guys be willing to do deals for me if I brought them to you? I said, absolutely. And so that's how my career started as an investment banker. At one point along the way, after doing that for five or six years successfully, I got bored. I wanted to start another company and I got into the God knows how, the lawn and garden business. Knew nothing about the lawn and garden other than my mother making me cut the lawn on Long Island every week and making sure that the grass looked like a baseball field. She was a fanatic about it. But in any event, they had a product that helped grass grow, and I acquired the company from the principals and started working on it and started doing a roll-up by buying other little companies and Got it up to maybe $100 million in volume. Went public with that company. It started trading in the -the over-the-counter market. Got bored again. The principals of the company were always upset because they felt that I was the CEO. I took too much money and they were doing all the work. And there was always this adversarial dialogue that went on. And so I said, well, then just do a leverage buyout. Take me out. They said absolutely, we'll do it. We came up with a price, and they said we'll get the bank. They went out to get a bank and couldn't find a bank. So I found a bank, did the leverage buyout. Then my career took another pivot. I wound up with a public company with cash, which was called a shell in those days. And you went around and looked for a good company to put in that shell to hopefully, you know, vault it uh, into a new business and make the stock go way up and make more money that way. Uh, I had then been in my second marriage uh, to my wife, Maureen, and uh, who wound up and still is the most influential person in my life. I was a very unruly and not easy-to-manage individual. Grew up that way, maybe because it was the streets of Brooklyn. Maybe it was just I was... Dyslexic and didn't really fare very well in school, and just took it out on everybody else. But she calmed me down till this day it still calms me down. If it wasn't for her, I'd still wind up getting in a fight in an elevator. She's terrific. She's biggest influence in my life, and after 50 years, uh, it's going to wind up that way. I'm not going anywhere, and neither is she. But anyway, we did this public shell deal. And I had a whole bunch of different opportunities presented to me uh, to put in the shell, and I didn't like this one, nursing companies, this kind of thing. And someone came to me and said they had a ray gun, my lawyer. I said, what do you mean a ray gun? He's developed a thing called directed energy. It was a process by which first a big laser was shot out of this cannon or whatever he wanted to call it. And then uh, an energy source went through the vacuum created by the laser and just destroyed everything in its way. And it occurred during the time when the IEDs were killing all these guys in Vietnam. And it turned out that if you put it on the front of a truck and you shot this ray into the ground, within 50 yards or 100 yards, it would detonate any IED in your way. It was awesome. And the stock was trading. At that time, when I did the deal, it was a tiny little stock, 50 cents, 60 cents, 70 cents. And I did this deal, and the fellow who was the head of the company, it got changed from being U.S. Home and Garden to Ionatron whatever that meant, but that was the name of the new company. And people got interested and the stock started to go from 70 cents to a dollar, from a dollar to two dollars, from two dollars to four dollars. I was still holding my stock from four dollars to six dollars, from six dollars to seven, from seven to eight, from eight to nine, from nine to 10. It got up to 11 dollars of course, I started selling as much stock as I could sell, which turned out to be one of the reasons I was able to be here at Bighorn. In any event, uh, there was a guy heading the company, uh, and uh, he got very frustrated because the general, who's the champion of this product in the armed forces, kept promising a contract that would be used to detonate IEDs. And he would miss the date and miss the date. And this young CEO got so upset that he went to the L.A. Times, where he was at the time, and told this story about how bad this general had acted in terms of what was happening. And, of course, that was the end of that deal. That general called up and said, how could you do that? I got egg all over my face. Uh, Was Hillary Clinton and Ted Kennedy had called this general and said... If there is a way to detonate these IEDs, how can you not bring it forward and use it and save these lives? And his excuse was, well, there's still some research that needs to be done. And I don't know, ever really, really know what the reason was, but he never got the contract. And he promised the CEO after he had egg on his face, you're never going to get the contract either at which point the stock started going down. But thankfully, I had sold most of mine. I had kept a little, and the stock went down to $7, $6, $5, $4, which was still a huge difference from what I had made the deal at. But I held on to that little bit of stock. After that, I went back to investment banking and did that till the end of my career, Um, had... Four children, two with my first wife uh, and uh, two with my second wife, Maureen, who lives here at Bighorn with me up on Pinnacle Crest. Um, I had a first marriage. I had a girl first and a boy. In the second marriage, I had a girl first and a boy and almost with the same age difference, two or two-and-a-half-year age difference. And I'm still very close with all of my children, and uh, kind of interesting, uh, at least with Jewish people. I am Jewish, and it's kind of interesting. Jewish people never get rid of their kids. I don't know what it is, but they're always there. And mine are. I'm still very close. I'm helping them all the time. They're successful. It's an interesting road. That's a whole other chapter of someone's life. I'm very happy with my four children, One of them works for me in a new company that I started. Along the way, I was constantly impacted by the fact that I was dyslexic. And I really didn't know what to do about that. When I got into law school and I had to study, I didn't know what to do. I got in in the middle of the year when the other students had already had the first half of whatever the introductory courses were, And uh, I had to come in in the middle. It was bad enough if you weren't dyslexic. Uh, But I was dyslexic. And the only way I could learn was I had three jobs. Of course, my dad didn't have any money. So I was a salad man at a restaurant. I worked at Chandler's Shoe Store uh, selling ladies' shoes. And I worked at a cleaner's handing out coupons, uh, house to house, sticking them under people's doors. And so I would come home at night from being the salad restaurant at the House of Beef (laughs) <laughs> and would study. And the way I would have to study in the beginning is I would have to read the entire caseload in the particular textbook and memorize it, because if I had asked a question in class, I really didn't know how to pick out the important part. so I would just recite what I had memorized. And after a while, the teacher would tell me, no, focus on this, focus on that, the professor would... And sooner or later... I was able to figure out how to mold my dyslexia to be able to deal with that issue. And ultimately, I wound up graduating third in my class at Emory University Law School, which wound up being a surprise to everybody I knew, including me. My dad didn't believe it in the beginning. I had to send him the report. But uh, that turned out to be uh, an interesting uh, event And that's when I went back to New York and, as I explained, took the bar exam and went to work for those law firms until I went out on my own. But along the way, uh, when I got married to my second wife, she was responsible for uh, calming me down, bringing me into the mainstream of society, making me understand that I needed to act differently towards people, kinder nicer, more sympathetic. I didn't completely control my anger and rage, but most of it, I probably still have some of that anger and rage today. I'm afraid to start up, I'm too old, I'm 82 years old. I'm afraid I'll get the hell beat out of me if I start up with anybody. But sometimes I feel like it, but don't do it. But I don't have much of it. She's been the biggest influence in my life. She's an incredible, beautiful person uh, who everybody loves and doesn't know what in the hell she's doing with me. But it's worked out really well. Uh, She's raised two incredible children. Uh, My younger daughter wound up at Barnard. My older daughter wound up at Cornell. My uh, older son wound up playing football at Washington. My younger son works for me in a company that I started for him in 2010, because in 2008, when he graduated from Berkeley, I didn't care whether you came from Princeton, Harvard, or Yale. In two thousand and eight, during that recession, you weren't getting a job. <laughs> you weren't getting a job, and so uh, for a couple of years, he floundered around in the video business. And I finally said to him, "Let's start a company." And somebody came to me with the idea of uh, marketing and building a product that decontaminates the. St- soles of shoes, takes germs off of shoes for hospitals, and that a huge number of pathogens were being transmitted into operating rooms and other uh, very uh, uh, key places in hospitals where pathogens should not be, and was reducing the number of pathogens and therefore reducing the number of HAIs, which were hospital or health care-acquired infections. I got extremely excited and agreed to finance it, which I did, and my younger son came to work for me, and I had agreed to put in X dollars, and that grew to X plus one after one year or two years, X plus two after three or four years, X plus five after five years, X plus seven after seven or eight years, and now it's 10 years, and it's X plus 10, but I've had a number of people ask to please invest with me. I said no because I never wanted anybody I knew, I never wanted to be responsible for their investment because no matter how good a friend they are, if you lose their money, they don't wind up being such good friends anymore. But anyway, I allowed two of them to come aboard. They're still aboard. And the company is just first now uh, being able to build a pipeline and it looks like things are taking off. name of the company is Healthy Soul. And it's one word, an S-O-L-E, not S-O-U-L, healthysoul.com. It's up on the web. Anybody interested can go look at it and see what it does. They're changing the website, but current website tells you what it does. And my youngest son is the now the CEO and is doing great. Uh, he spends all of his time working his butt off, getting this thing off the ground. We have some good people working for us. So I anticipate that uh, it will become what I believe will be a product that will be in every hospital in the country, in the world. As a matter of fact, I put one that's back now in the spa here at Bighorn. And you step on it, it looks like a scale and has holes in it. And you step on it with your shoes And it works on ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light, UV light, kills pathogens, all pathogens. You step on it for eight seconds, and a little video screen on the top of the device says, okay, eight seconds are up, get off, you're done. And then step into the room where you don't want those pathogens and you have fewer pathogens. Now, other things bring pathogens into those rooms. not the only thing. It's part of a bundle of products that are used to try and keep pathogens out of these rooms. And these pathogens are Mercer, E. coli, uh, uh, Staphylococcus, Enterococcus, uh, all of the horrible different things that cause healthcare, health hospital acquired infections. And we've now expanded it to elderly care centers and to food uh, uh, clean rooms and clean rooms for uh, other businesses. So it's an interesting business, and uh, uh, we are now doing another raise. That's not the purpose of this podcast. So I'm not going to say how you do it. Um, I don't want I don't want anybody to do that. So. Uh, But we are doing another round of financing because we're getting to the next stage of our business, which is to expand the brand and the footprint and uh, hopefully uh, turn it into what it should be. Uh, Jury's out because everybody, I think, listening to this who's a member at Bighorn knows that nine out of 10 startups die. You're lucky if that one makes it. So I don't know if we're the one, but I'm hoping and it looks like we're heading in that direction. Um Bighorn, for me, has been a revelation. Uh, I got here uh, as a recommendation from somebody of Santa Barbara. I had moved from uh, New York to Santa Barbara. I don't know how I ever... I was playing tennis. I was playing or getting ready to play in the 50 and overs. I uh, was training with a coach. And took my knee out, so that career ended and I started playing polo. Uh, I had been riding horses for 40 years and doing jumping and hunting, and uh, not because my family had the money, because I wound up uh, being able to finance that hobby and was doing that and wound up not being able to play tennis. And then some friends of mine who played polo invited me to come to the Santa Barbara Polo Club and play polo. And so they first give you a stick and a ball and teach you how to do that, and eventually you get into playing polo. Uh, I didn't realize that polo was the most dangerous sport in the United States. More paraplegics are the result of accidents uh, from polo than any other sport, and it's because the riders get thrown, they get their necks snapped, and they become paralyzed. Uh, I played in one tournament. Some poor young lady didn't wear the right equipment, got thrown from the horse, died right on the field. So it's an extremely dangerous sport. Looks like a kind of a, a game for sissies when you watch it, but it's anything but that. It's very, very dangerous, but probably the most exciting sport you could possibly ever, ever get in. You, you get more adrenaline pumped through your system from riding a horse at twenty five or thirty miles an hour uh, with a a mallon in your hand hitting a ball down the on the down the road and the other players allowed to ride into you at a, no more than a forty-five degree angle. It's a really scary sport, but the most exciting sport you could ever play. Expensive. Uh, I think the average team probably cost a half a million dollars a year to man a team. I didn't do that. Uh, I did, I, I, I manned a team for substantially less, uh, but still played for two years until I got the final injury when my wife showed up at the field, the ambulance was on the field. She said, that's the last time the ambulance is showing up and putting your shoulder back in your arm. And uh, while I was in the hospital, She secretly went over to the polo field, sold all my polo horses, my saddles, my halters, uh, all of my equipment, uh, didn't tell me. When I got out of the hospital, I went back to the polo field. The director asked me, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean? I'm ready to play. He said, you can't play. You don't belong here anymore. I went back, and uh, my wife said, don't say a word. You're finished. You're not playing again. You're going to get killed the next time you play. So I was basically... I had nothing to do. And so uh, I started that US Home and Garden Company, which is the one I told you about that turned into and, uh, But being in Santa Barbara and living in Santa Barbara, which is a beautiful place, quite frankly, it's vapid. It's beautiful, but all people talk about all day long is I live in such a beautiful place. You go into a home, you can't find a book. It's extremely difficult. It's boring, at least for me. I don't want to say anything bad about Santa Barbara, but uh, that's the way it was for me. And you can't hire people. Too expensive. You can't get them housing. Uh, Houses in Santa Barbara, you can't get anything for less than a million, two million, three million dollars. I couldn't bring people on board and support their housing. So I decided I wanted to move to a city and move to San Francisco where I then lived for the next 25 years and uh, started a business there, was where I ran U.S. Home and Garden for 12 years and then did the investment banking uh, before I then moved to Bighorn. I moved uh, from my offices to, uh, I moved to the Four Seasons in uh, San Francisco for two years, lived in one of the penthouses, was really lucky and uh, then uh, didn't like San Francisco anymore. I didn't like the weather. It's freezing there in the summer. Who was it? Was it uh, Mark Twain who said the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco? He was telling the truth. I don't know whether it was him or not, but he's, he's accredited with having said that. He was telling the truth if he did say it. So where else was I going to go? And I had some folks and friends of mine and said, you got to move to Palm Desert. And there's only one place to go. It's Bighorn. There's a bunch of places that you should go see, but Bighorn's the only place to go. I said, how do you know? We have friends there that we visited there. and So we said, okay. We came and visited and looked at the vintage, the reserve, a uh, hideaway, and came here to Bighorn and decided after being here, it had the fewest rules. I thought that was attractive. And so I said, that's good for me. I don't need rules. That doesn't work for me. And uh, I didn't want to wear a jacket to dinner. So... We joined, and they took me, much to my surprise. And uh, we rented a house first on uh, Chapala. Chapala? Chalaka. That's the name of the street, Chalaka. Rented a house for two years and uh, bought a piece of property up on Pinnacle Crest, up on the top of the hill, next door to uh, Darrell Cates, where he was building, or going to build, and built a house where I currently live with my wife, Maureen, and where my kids come to visit. So I've had an amazing experience at Bighorn. To me, it's the greatest place in the world. Uh, I don't mind being alone. Uh, I spend a lot of time alone. I have wonderful friends here, the Cranes, the Greaves, uh, the Lefts, uh, they're all good friends. I have lots of folks and friends that are, are really nice, wonderful people, Uh, that I socialize with, probably less than most people, but to me, it's an incredible place to be able to live and spend your time, uh, your senior years, although there are an awful lot of young people joining uh, lately, uh, bringing the average age down, I think, from somewhere in the low 80s down to 74 or 72. A lot of 50-year-olds, 55 and 60-year-olds joining, coming on the weekends. Uh, The only negative is it's a little tougher to play golf on the weekends. They're all out playing. But in any event, it's still the two most beautiful golf courses in the world. And the maintenance is incredible. Uh, The people that manage them are awesome. And uh, it's just an incredible place. Whatever negatives you may have or think about Bighorn, throw them out because they are outweighed By the positives. It's an incredible place, and you're really, really lucky to be here. And uh, too bad we lost our benevolent dictator, although he was a dictator, but a benevolent one, but he was terrific. He managed to get things done that nobody else would have gotten done. And it would have gone to, I don't know how many different committees before anything got done. I know at uh, the Vintage and at the Reserve and other clubs, you got 18 committees before anything can get done. Tamarists, it's all the same thing. So I think that uh, the new staff, which are the remnants of what remained after Hubbard, are doing a good job. They're trying to get their feet on the ground and get everything done uh, and follow his his legacy. I think they're doing a great job. There's a lot of work that they still have to do, but I think they'll get it done. And I think Bitcoin will remain the shining star of the desert that that it is and was and has been for a long time. What vision Hubbard had when he entered into this deal. It's incredible. Uh, I read his book, and I don't know if many of you have, but it's an incredible story. Not an easy guy, I agree, but an incredible visionary and did an amazing job putting this place together took an amazing amount of money out, but that goes along with being a visionary. And so I think it's going to continue that way. I hope it does, uh, because uh, I just want to stay here and finish out whatever time there is here at Bighorn. My wife loves it. Our friends all feel the same way. I hope all of you that might be listening feel that way, because you should. It's a very unusual place. Whatever negatives you find are far outweighed by the positives. There are things you can do here that you can't do anywhere else in the desert, and you should be really happy about that and proud of that fact. Uh, My journey, although, as you can tell, I pivoted 10 different times, uh, to me was a really great way to have a career. Gives you the chance to experience all kinds of different Businesses, different people, different industries, different ways of of trying to make a career and money. And I was very fortunate. Uh, uh, I didn't have the training or the education that many of you uh, have had here. Uh, I didn't have any family background that could have helped. So it was uh, a total self effort. Although I had wonderful folks, they just didn't have the wherewithal to be able to push me along. So uh, I sort of had to get there myself. I don't think anything's wrong with that. I think that's actually good. But trust me, there's nothing wrong with having folks who can help you. That's terrific. If I had my choice, I would have had folks who could have helped. So uh, if you do, you're lucky and take advantage of it. God bless you. Um, I think that... uh, Marty doing this podcast, it's really interesting. It brings to, to the forefront a lot of the folks that are here at Bighorn that nobody knows or nobody really uh, has any uh, relationship with and, and can uh, sort of open that up for them and, and so they can share the experience and maybe pick up some pointers about different things that they do. But once again, you are incredibly lucky to be here and uh, should consider yourself uh, fortunate to uh, be able to stay and take advantage of all the different opportunities and uh, 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 activities that are constantly being improved and uh, 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 amplified here at Bighorn. Pickleball's a good example. Uh, they saw that it was popular. You now have more pickleball courts. Uh the golf courses are being maintained. Tougher to maintain the golf courses. You got a lot more play, but these are guys that are out there are trying to uh and you know, not all you guys are filling the divots. Fill the divots. There are too many of you playing and not fill <laughs> filling the divots. Fill the divots because otherwise you're gonna to have too many holes in the golf course. Your ball's gonna wind up landing in them. But in any event, everybody is working really hard to keep those golf courses manicured and uh, in the kind of shape that you want it to be so you can really enjoy your play and uh, be able to get on almost any time you want. Uh, My story is, uh, and I've abbreviated it, there's a lot of in between that I really didn't think uh, I needed to bore you with, but uh, there were certainly loads of time in between the activities that I talked about and told you about that were scary, boring, career-threatening, didn't know where the next meal was gonna come from, uh, but somehow uh, I managed to get through and wind up here at Bighorn. So I'm incredibly lucky and wound up with the most incredible person as my partner that I could ever, ever dream of having in my life, and that's my wife, Maureen. Everybody loves her. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. She's kind. She's an incredible mother. She's an incredible advisor. She is the most influential person in my life. I've had lots of folks who helped along the way with different businesses, but none that have influenced me as an individual as much as my wife has. So God bless her. I can't say enough about what she's done for me. Marty, if you have any questions you want to ask me, Shoot.
0: I certainly have some questions, but this is amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, what you've just heard this is a person who came in here with no notes, certainly thought about it and had some preparation, but I'm just amazed. And the story, I was riveted to the entire story. I have questions about some of the stuff. This is a journey that's really going to be fascinating to people that listen to this podcast. Some of the questions I have, certainly your parents at the very start, they gave you a lot of support. At le- I mean, they couldn't give you financial support, but they were always supportive to you as you went along in your business career. They tried.
1: My mother was mentally challenged, unfortunately. She was uh, schizophren- schizophrenic, paranoid, and was in and out of some institutions from time to time, So she was limited in what she could do to really mentor me or help me. But when she was lucid, she was awesome. Wasn't that often, but I guess, you know, uh, that had an impact on me. And my therapist, yes, I have recently started going to a therapist to explore some of these issues. And he's explained to me, at least, that that kind of trauma for young people, stays with you the rest of your life. Uh, That's helpful to know, uh, but I didn't realize it at the time. It would have been helpful to understand when it was going on, but at least I understand it more now. My dad was a hard worker. uh, And in in those days, your dad went out to work. He came home. His wife fixed the meal. You watched TV for a while, and you went to bed. He asked you, did you do your homework? I went upstairs and said yes, and instead I looked at Playboy magazines uh, and didn't do my homework, which I should have done. But in any event, he was a good father. He helped when he could, but so much of his time was taking trying to manage my mother's situation. It was difficult for him to really uh, support me emotionally or otherwise. Financially, he couldn't. He just it didn't, didn't work for him, but he did what he could. And for that, I'm ever grateful and loved them. And that's the way my childhood really uh,
0: went. So it's the best answer I can give you to that question. What uh, sports has seemed to have been a factor in your life all the way along? The sports. I always
1: wanted to be an NFL football player. I was the youngest kid in my class because growing up in Brooklyn, they changed the way classes went when I was in the fifth or sixth grade. So instead of pushing you behind, guys that were in the second half, or kids that were in the second half, they pushed you ahead to to the next grade. So I was always the youngest kid in the class. So playing football in high school, I was always playing with guys when I was 15 and 16 who were a year older than me. And at that age, at 15 or 16, that means a lot. They're 20 pounds heavier than you and bigger than you. and so. I could never really get the opportunity I wanted. I played, but never could get to the level that I wanted to get to. To this day, if they told me I could play one series of downs in the NFL, I would do it. I once asked an NFL player who I knew, I was maybe 65 at the time, you know, do you think I could get in shape and play one series of downs in the NFL? He got hysterical. He fell on the floor. He said, you'd be dead. He was the guy that wrote the screenplay on any given Sunday. He was, his name was Williams, I think, and he was uh, with the Giants. But uh, he said, I'm three years out of the league. When I made the film, I had all my friends come to be extras, football players. He said, just those three years, it's like having a Ford 150 truck hit you. That's the equivalent of having some of these linemen hit you. They'd kill you. You you couldn't do
0: it. Well, George Plimpton wrote a book.
1: Yeah, he did. For the Detroit you know, Lions. That's right. That's who he played for, for one series of downs. He's lucky he's not dead. But in any event, till this day, I feel, uh, you know, bad about not being able to be an NFL player. I played basketball in high school. I played baseball. I was a catcher in high school. Uh, was on the track team. In between that, I was a high jumper. Not very good, but I was a high jumper. Uh, And it was sports that kept me in school. Were it not for the different folks that managed those different athletics at those schools, uh, I would have been gone. I was suspended twice, but the coaches got me back in school. When I got to college, uh, were it not for the fact that I played lacrosse, the coach kept me in school and uh or else I'd have been gone then too, and almost always for fighting that rage and anger, which i think i I almost believe you're wired that way i don't believe you you picked that up, I think you're born that way quite frankly i i, I you have to be to a great extent that has to be in your DNA yeah and uh,
0: socially that's probably an issue but As far as your business career, and your, it it probably, I mean, you're a fighter. And so you continued, whatever the circumstances were, whatever happened that may have been bad, it sounds to me like you just picked it up and said, okay, I'm going to move forward. This is not going to, nothing's going to stop. Correct.
1: I was always, I woke up with what drove me, quite frankly, Marty, every day of my life, and I'm almost uh, embarrassed to admit it, is I wake every morning of my life full of fear. I don't know why, but every morning that I wake up, I'm f- fearful. Either it's
0: interesting. I've talked to a number of people where, to your point, they don't enjoy success. What drives them is fear. That's that, what drives me. Yeah. So the the Fraser Ali or Cassius Clay, well, I guess when you first met him, you become. He was became, already Ali. OK, he was already Ali. Um, that's, of course, fascinating to everybody because um, at that time, I understand, Frazier, part of the reason he didn't want to fight was he was singing with a group. Smoking and he wa- Joes, he was that's out, right. He the was reason he shape. wouldn't
1: take the fight yeah. was because he was out with his group smoking Joes and wouldn't, wouldn't take the fight. Uh, recently, they made a movie called, it's on Netflix, called Ali's Comeback, The Real Story. You should really pick that one up On Netflix. Uh, I'm in that movie. As a matter of fact, you might consider me the main character in that movie, but it's really informative. There have been a couple of movies made since then that really are inaccurate, really upsetting, that they really don't tell the story the way it happened. But they tell the story because it fits history better. And I think that, in a way, is almost better for the public. Let the public think that the way they tell the story, it's just, it's better, it's more palatable.
0: I've seen the Netflix version, and I do recommend to anybody that they should see it. Did you realize at the time, Robert, about the social significance of no. that event?
1: No. I was concerned about the money. And uh, what happened along the way, it became something I couldn't avoid. I was the only white person involved, other than the guy managing the movie theaters for me, involved in this situation. You couldn't help but have it become a racial issue. Uh, I didn't want it to be because it got in the way. Uh, Every time I would try to move forward, the racial issue would come up. I would get more phone calls. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill your children. We're going to kidnap your children. We're to, it was just, I didn't pay any attention. It was kind of interesting. The FBI got involved. And the night of the fight, they came to me and said, you have to wear this bully, bulletproof vest under your tuxedo before you go into the ring. I said, I'm not doing that. I just had this, this custom-made tuxedo made. I'm so proud of it. Ki- I'm not doing it. So I didn't do it. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you see the movie, you'll see me in the ring when they're announcing it. And you'll see, I was skinny. I didn't have a, a, a vest on. I probably should have done it. But what they did was they made an escape hatch under the ring so that if there was any kind of attack, I was to run under the ring and go through this escape hatch, through the floor, out of the auditorium, out to the FBI's uh, vehicles to take me away. Uh, of course, we never used it, but let me tell you, that was some crowd. You, whew, the, the, if, if they ever wanted to really make a movie, they could have made a movie out of that crowd. If you watched the movie with Denzel Washington, what was the name of that movie where he uh, was the dope lord? I don't remember it, but I'm sure a lot of you folks will remember it you remember that he went to a fight and he went to the fight wearing a fur coat and hat that his wife insisted on wearing. He didn't want to wear it. He didn't want the attention, but he wore it. And sure enough, the people who were investigating the dope were found that guy in the fur coat who was the character Denzel Washington was playing and they got him. Yeah. They got him, but I think it was modeled after the Ali fight.
0: Well, and you talked about, it was my understanding that you negotiated that th- that they would get the live gate, but you would then That's have correct. all the ancillary. The,
1: the Leroy Johnson, the senator, and my father-in-law would get the live gate. I took all of the TV ancillary income, which was the big end of the purse. There was, you know, some uh, scandal with the senator, uh, when people came to their seats, there was a row A, but all of a sudden there was a row AA. There was a row B and a row BB. And he sold tickets to row A and row AA and B. And I don't know where those people ultimately sat, but there was a lot of scandal going on around the auditorium, uh, but it was one hell of a night, I've got to tell you. And Ollie really, when I went in the ring, I grabbed the doctor and said, don't, don't stop the fight. You can't. You, it's the third round. You can't do that. He said, come over here. I went to uh, Quarry's round, and I, I looked at him, and it was above his eyebrow, and it was open, and you could see the bone through there. There was 13 It was... Uh, there was no way he was going out.
0: Well, I was the recipient of your endeavors. I watched that at Winterland in San Francisco. And you're right, the energy there, and as you know, it's in a minority neighborhood. So my concern would be that Jerry Quarry might get the luckiest punch of his life that night, and there could be some (laughs) trouble. But it was an event unrivaled at that time.
1: It was crazy, it was really crazy. Uh, But it was really scary. Dealing with the black Muslims was really scary. I mean, you know, the the story is fairly well documented that they're the ones who assassinated Malcolm X. Uh, And supposedly the bodyguard they wanted to allocate to me was the guy. Uh, I don't know whether that was true or not. I just didn't want any of them shadowing me because it was you know, scary, and didn't, uh, didn't allow them to do that. Uh, but I, I did not want to continue in the fight game. It was too scary. Bob Arum was too smart, too well-known, too experienced, and still to this day is the czar of the fight game out of, out of Las Vegas.
0: A um, couple of more questions. Um, Number one, how would you define leadership? Because we hear that word a lot, whether it be in politics today or any part of our uh, lives, and you were a leader in many endeavors. How would you define leadership?
1: Moving forward. Never move backwards. Leadership is an issue that is resolved by moving forward, resolving issues moving forward, finding ways of resolving problems. Don't look back. If you look back, you're going to repeat the same problems over and over again. If you look for ways of finding different and new ways of resolving the issues, moving forward, constantly moving forward, finding talent that can help the right way and the right endeavors you're moving with finding the right talent. You're not a a genius in every different aspect of business. Trust it to people who understand that business. And for me, that was the way of really trying to be successful, relying on people that I evaluated were ones that could handle the particular situation that I was involved in.
0: So that leads to the next question. What qualities do you look for when you're hiring somebody?
1: I think in most cases, it's being able to listen, being able to evaluate the different strategies and the different ways that these experts and people listen to their approach to the way that they solve a problem. Listen. Listen try to evaluate and come up with the best solutions, compromise and listen, don't be obstinate. And uh, that was the best way to be able to take advantage of how to move forward and be successful. You have to listen. You can't, as stubborn as I am and as much rage and anger as I have, I learned to listen. And when I came when it came full cycle to understanding a problem, I brought the right people around to help me figure out that problem.
0: What were your first impressions of D. Hubbard when you first came to Bighorn?
1: I don't know. He was sort of a character. Uh, Seemed like an interesting guy, an exciting guy. He was blusterous and uh, nice to me. I was obviously going to be a member, so he was nice to me. I thought that uh, I quickly assessed the fact that he was a benevolent dictator. It was no question he was a dictator. I wasn't sure that was going to work out. I didn't know. But as I listened to the different decisions he made, at first I thought, well, that doesn't seem right. It turned out they were right, and he managed to do it that way, whether I liked it or not. And it was successful. And that was my opinion of him.
0: Last question that I ask everybody that does these podcasts, Robert, and that is what would you tell the 20-year-old Robert Castle today?
1: Just stay the course, man. Just keep pushing forward, forward, forward. Find a hole to go through. It doesn't matter what it is. Find some daylight. It's like the NFL. Run to daylight. Go where you can go. Find a person. Find a partner. Find an associate. Find some daylight. Run to that spot, no matter what it is. Learn what it is you need to learn about the particular thing that you're looking at and just move forward. Make the commitment. Take the chance.
0: Thanks, Robert, for being here today. It's a great story, and I'm sure that the audience is going to love it when they hear it.
1: Well, thanks, Marty. I really appreciate having me, and I think it's a great thing you're doing with the podcast, introducing folks at Bighorn to the rest of the community, and thanks again.
0: Today's podcast continues to show the twists and turns, both professionally and personally, that make these stories so compelling, opening new doors to success taking risks, and as Robert said, continuing to move forward. Once again, thank you to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and Back Nine Greens for their support that enables us to continue to present the Big Horn podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. These are people and entities that believe in our community and our ability to bring us together, and I urge you to support them as they support our community. Join us next time for another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, available through Apple Music and Spotify. This is Marty Lockman, thanking you for listening.